everyone, we're back with another interview episode, and today we're speaking with the creator, writer, and artist of La Voz de Mayo, uh, Henry Barajas and Jay Gonzo. I do want to take a moment to say that La Voz de Mayo, Tata Rambo, which is the full name of the book from Top Cat Productions and Imprint of uh, Image Comics, is really close to my heart. I don't think that I have read anything else this year, maybe ever, that has hit me like this. It made me think of my own grandfather. It made me think of how much history Mexican Americans and indigenous people in the U.S. have lost and have just been forgotten about. So uh, make sure you look at our show notes to find out where you can pick up the book. And I really hope you enjoy this interview. It was amazing to get to speak to these two great creatives. Enjoy. Uh, uh, I'm Henry Barajas. I am the author of Los, La Voz de Mayo, Tata Rambo. I am from Tucson, Arizona. I was a journalist and a comedian, and uh, I'm now in Los Angeles. I'm the director of operations at Top Cow Productions, and uh, I'm very proud of the work that Gonzo and I did. Hold on. I'm uh, Jay Gonzo. I'm the artist of La Voz de Mayo, Tata Rembo. Uh, I'm a uh, illustrator and graphic designer and tattoo artist, uh, formerly from Los Angeles. I now live in Phoenix. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you guys for talking with me and coming on. Um, I have to say, as somebody who grew up with a, with a Welo, with a grandfather, um, who told me stories uh, that nowhere else had, uh, reading Tata Rambo, like, I cried multiple times. Um, <laughs> uh, I almost cried reading your review. I was oh. in London having fish and chips after a thought bubble and I got your tweet and I was like almost crying in a bar which probably isn't uncommon in London I was like bars are sometimes a good place to cry it's okay <laughs> <laughs> um so uh how um how did one uh Henry how did you start this project as uh, as a writer and Gonzo how did you come on to the project I I started writing the prose biography by him, about my great grandfather because I was inherently writing just prose from my time at the Tucson Weekly and Arizona Daily Star and and I got a copy of John Lewis's March and I realized that I should be making comics because that's all I've ever wanted to do and that's what I used to do and uh, I took a I took a break to be a journalist and when I worked at the when I started working on Top Cow, I was writing and developing this project, and my boss, Matt Hawkins, was interested in what I was doing, and he read my overview and, and, and really took on to what I was trying to put out there, and he said, I'll help you only if Jay Gonzo draws it. And a light bulb kind of clicked in my head and was like, yeah, I, he's kind of the perfect guy to do this. And after talking to him, he was able to find a gap in his schedule between La Mano Destino to uh, help me tell my story. Yeah, yeah I just drew it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, are you there? Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, 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 I can hear you. Okay, cool. Sorry, I think my connection was getting a little weird. Um, yeah, I, I, I came on. I, I talked to Matt Hawkins over, over at Top Cow about maybe doing some projects over there because I was coming up on a gap in my schedule. And 
I guess Matt knew that. I mean, Matt knew that. So he suggested me to Henry and he didn't know that Henry and I knew each other from before, from going to like Phoenix cons and just traveling in similar circles. And yeah, I wouldn't have even thought to ask Henry if he had any projects going. So yeah, Matt's kind of the guy who put us together. And uh, yeah, I mean, as soon as I heard what the project was, uh, given kind of the like Latino focus of the thing, the, the projects I've been working on, I was like, yeah, that's perfect for me. I'm, I'd absolutely come on board. One of the things that's really striking about uh, La Voz de Mayo outside of just, you know, the, the historical narrative and, and that piece is also the art. Um, when I opened it, when I got the first, uh, the, the cover of it, when I saw the cover for the first time, I was, it reminded me of a lot of the uh, posters that my grandpa had. Uh, from the Chicano movement and uh, I was wondering like what were some of your inspirations and how you chose your color palette um, which is it's very specific very striking um. oh yeah I um yeah I definitely I mean my my uh, my background in graphic design comes out you know like I, I definitely like those kind of the iconography of, of those kind of like uh, movement posters and stuff and it's something I've liked for a long time like I have an entire book of like Russian avant-garde, uh, you know, like protest posters and stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I wanted to, I wanted to have that kind of like, you know, um, that aesthetic to it, that that uh, populist, I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of like you know, feel of it. And I, I definitely wanted it to to feel uh, old to a degree too. Like I wanted it to feel vintage because it is a history, and I wanted it to feel like a very like well-worn, you know, uh, well-loved history. So I, you know, I kind of. I gave it that sort of distressed, you know, antique look. And then the, the color palette was just probably as a suggestion from Henry. You know, like he was like, I want it to look like a Tucson sunset, you know, and, and I just kind of, you know, I've always been a, um, like in my own personal work, like I could, I do a, a book about luchadors and, and I, and I'm sick of like seeing Mexico portrayed in, in sepia tones, you know, it's always brown and dirty looking. And, 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 uh, I just wanted to like, kind of, I've always wanted to show like, like Latino culture is like the bright, vibrant hues that I know my culture to be, to be. And so when he said like, you know, Tucson sunset, I was like, oh, I can totally, I can lean into that. No problem. And that's, that's basically how I shook out that color palette. And Henry, um, you do this really beautiful thing, um, throughout, throughout the different chapters in, in, in La Voz, uh, where you, you shift from yourself and your perspective in present day and, and shift to the histories. Um, was one part of that harder to write than the other? Um, yes, because I wanted to be authentic and I didn't want it to be boring. And I wanted to relay information in a way that was interesting. Like what means is we go to the Rito uh, horse track where the, the, the birth of quarter horse racing had happened. And when you think of Tucson and you think of the Southwest, you think of like the desert and you think of, of saloons and, and Billy the kid. And, and there's like a whole different side of Tucson, especially in that time frame where we were going from a post-World War II era uh, with 150% increase in population and they needed things to do when they did have things to do. And I wanted to show that um, Mo meets with the, the reader sees Mo meet Ramon at a, at a baseball game because Ramon used to play and coach baseball. And uh, it's kind of like a home setting. Like you have a lot of families there. And when Ramon meets Mo, Mo has to do the political 
song and dance. So he goes to, and Gonzo picked up on this perfectly. He goes to this racetrack where there's people laughing and drinking champagne and, and betting money that they just don't need. And I wanted to show different aspects of not only Native American history of being, you know, a big baseball, not only is baseball, not basketball, but baseball is a big uh, component and just American communities, but also show a side of Tucson that no one would ever probably know of. And there's something, uh, another one of the beautiful things that I, I thought you did was a lot of the times when we see histories like this, but when we see history in general portrayed a lot of the time, some of the rougher parts uh, kind of get smoothed out, right? Some of these rougher edges. Um, but in in La Voz, you all really like, you all tackle those, those, those hard parts head on. Um, you're specifically looking at the, uh, well, we forget a lot as 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 Latinos, as you know, as Mexican Americans, as you know, and, and this umbrella is that there's a large indigenous population that also shares histories with us, and a lot of the times they're more marginalized than even we are. Um, and you all showcased that um, in, in on in Res Life and addiction, and uh, you know how they build their houses, and it was. It was something that I had to kind of step away from my coffee for a second because one, you're writing Henry, and two, Gonzo, your artwork was just like a like a sledgehammer to the chest. Like it was it was real deep and and real raw. How did you all approach those those moments, like those darker moments in the story? I mean, for me, writing it uh, in my research. I found a whole book um, that was this group that from the University of Arizona, they had took, they surveyed how many men and women there were there in the community, in the Pasqua uh, village, how many kids were there, how many people were able to read, how many people came from back from war. And it was all information that was really interesting to me that they had taken it upon themselves to be able to like show, show the, reasons why they needed an, like an emergency care and um, health services. And that's a big part of what my great-grandfather did was he co-founded El Rio Clinic that gave, that was one of the first clinics in Tucson that um, offered contraceptives and birth control to the, to the Native and Mexican American communities and the Black communities and, and the Tucson community in general. So, um, I wanted to talk about that because it's very important for people to know what the stakes were. And I wrote that scene, and I was uh, I'm now finally interested to hear what Gonzo thought of what he was doing and what what his approach was to that. Uh, to which scene in particular? I'm sorry. You know the scene where they're um, building their houses and there's the drug oh. addiction. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was one of the things that drew me to the project was your um, was you're not sugarcoating anything. You know, I mean, we show uh, like Ramon pouring whiskey into his coffee in the morning, and we show uh, his infidelities, and then we show kind of the conditions. Like, I think that a lot of times, you know, when we think about uh, the people, have, you know, we idealize their like, you know. 
how they communed with late nature and had this beautiful idyllic thing. I mean, but it was it was important that we showed kind of the the realities of what these situations were. And and and, uh, and, and I think that when we when it's ra- well rounded like that and, and truthful, that it resonates as truth, right? You know, it, it's. Uh, and I, I I think that sometimes when we show heroics being done by people who have been lionized in a way that has removed some of their foibles. It's easy to dismiss her- heroism as the as the um, as the area of people who are infallible, and I think that when we humanize our heroes, it it allows us to be heroic in a way that that we didn't have permission from before. So that was something that that you know I, I really appreciated about the the book and and how I I, I went into it is I wasn't going to shy away from from um you know like like taking out the sticky bits right you know the parts that were going to be a little uncomfortable and and then to not um. I didn't want to like fetishize them either. I didn't want to like because there is a uh, there is a certain amount of fetishization of marginalized people's struggle that starts to create like a monomyth, which can be unfortunate, right? It's like that you know every rapper had to have bro- you know grown up in a broken home in the ghetto, and it's like why why can't he just have come from suburbia with good parents, you know? But I, I didn't want it to, so I didn't want to like make it lurid in that way. I didn't want to like really like. Uh, yeah, I didn't want these these scenes of like the drug overdose to, to just be this, you know, like the like let's get the the purple faces and the you know the 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 bloated lips or whatever, like all of that that kind of grossness that can kind of come with the, the fetishizing depravity. I think is a is an American pastime, especially for like uh, white people. So I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to be as real as possible, but kind of like a little bit like let's let's cut to the emotional core of it like the drug overdose scene like the the attic is is a different color than everyone else and then but everything else is on a kind of monotone but everyone else is just very in a very real you know position like you know the mother's cradling him and ramon's in the doorway and the, the scenes of like the um i literally just took photographs for reference for the uh, for the living conditions that were they were in because i didn't want to idealize it but i also didn't want to again just just pour over every detail and fetishize the suffering of them because that does that does almost as not it's almost as disruptive as not showing it at all right is to yeah. is to like you know, look how gross this is so um you know I, I i it was a fine line and so ultimately i approached it with just as realistic as i could but still ha- have some emotional core to it you know based on how i frame things and how i how i uh what I choose to focus on and, and, and uh, you know, make it palatable in a way that, that wasn't dismissive, I guess. There, there's a short answer. <laughs> Those are some really great answers, honestly, and it really helps me as a reader. Like, I, after, probably after after we finish here, I'm, I'm going to start rereading it again um, and, and kind of, like, pay attention to some of these little things. Um, but you mentioned also the infidelity, and, and I have to ask, Henry, because this is, like, your family story, um, what does your family think about, like, kind of showcasing those parts? Well, they didn't want me to. <laughs> they were very worried because, as you know, like the elders are always held in such high regard. And um, but he lived in a broken trailer, and his plumbing didn't work, and his he didn't have heat. So a part of me kind of questioned how much did the family really love him. So if if they only care about what the per- public perception would receive of what I was doing, why didn't they go help him more than he, when he needed it? Yeah. And when I would go to his trailer and sit with him and, and talk to him and take him out to eat so he can have a meal for the day, it was always like, you know, if you really love the person you're trying to protect, why, why is he here? Yeah. So why do you care what I'm going to say when you, in, in, in my opinion, he wasn't on everybody's um, 
top priority. He was not anybody's top priority. But he was also, you know, a very proud, stubborn man, and he he was okay with what he was what he was left with and what he had worked for. And and uh, I wanted to, like Gonzo said, I, it was really important for me to tell the truth. And it always bothered me when I would find out about my heroes growing up and them not being perfect because in school they made me think that, like Martin Luther King. I had no idea he cheated on his wife, and and I was shocked. I thought, you know, that I, I mean, I appreciate and respect and admire him for everything he's ever done. But I, I wish I, I would have had that small bit of information. And and, and in a in a storytelling setting, you know, it would it would seem sad if he had got he had fought for the tribe, and he had got everything he wanted and everything was fine for him. The end. It, it just wouldn't have been a compelling enough story for me to tell. Um, I think that really adds to how sad this whole situation is. Not only did he help achieve this amazing thing with this amazing community, but he also had lost his wife, who I think he loved, and he also kind of fell into obscurity, and all that just was really just important for me to tell. Yeah, it started making me think about a lot of... Uh... A lot of activists that I know the name of, but don't really know where they are, or don't really know like their story right. past, you know, past Huelga. <laughs> like it's it's yeah. it definitely was sobering to kind of see and, and, and understand. And, and I'm as a reader, I mean, and also as like a Mexican American, like we didn't find out my grandpa had a first wife until he died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had one of those too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're like, what are we going to have these other uncles? Where did they come from? <laughs> yeah, that's a part of our community. And I had done a, a podcast interview with uh, with Los Primos, and they were talking about how much they appreciated the scene of uh, where the priest and the nun, they, like, have a drink and have a smoke at this party in Berkeley. Like, you know, growing up, my yep. my my cat, like my church, my priests and, and nuns, they were in the community drinking and smoking and having barbecues and, and family gatherings. And it was just, they were just a part of the community and that's how they, they operated. And I had some people just kind of wince at the idea that these like holy people were partaking in these sinful activities. And it was just, you just get so many different reactions. And, and I'm really happy that people are, are even caring, caring enough to read it, let alone tell us what what surprises them uh what were some of y'all's favorite scenes to work on go henry that's you man you go first <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i think that my favorite scenes where gonzo and i clicked and uh, there's the scene where we see ray freembress who's the um you know the the, the lobbyist that's trying to build the freeway and propose it and they're on top of this building and on the bottom floor you see the protests of the community and then you go into a nine panel spread and and when i wrote when i was writing this book everybody was really uh just amazed with the with tom king's nine panel storytelling and you know, nine panel story, storytelling has, has been around forever but everyone was acting like tom king had done it first and i wanted to like I want to implore that that technique 
but in a way that made sense. And Gonzo, I, I had him do a nine-panel grid of just what it was like to be in a protest with no sound. And he masterfully just took it and ran and and the colors in that whole that two page spread every if you open it every every two pages is a double page spread and it's we he really understood what i was trying to do and he did it he gave me something even more um high concept than i could ever con- conceive Oh yeah, I, I overthink everything. That's just the design. <laughs> uh, the design is that it's you know it's not only it's not only panels, but it's how the panels work in relation to each other and how the two page spreads work. So I design everything as two page spreads, and then occasionally Henry will give me something cool that like lines up really well, even though they're two separate pages. Like it, it becomes a two page spread, and the kind of thought carries along with it. And, and so my favorite page is uh, at the Christmas scene at the church. Uh, there's a, there's two page spread of two nine panel grids. That begins with, um, like the family together in like one panel, and then or, like on the top right, and then it, as it goes, like the kind of partners that that Ramon is talking to changes to where he's talking to Fimbres, and then there's a it just so happened to line up where there's three central panels of Fimbres like lighting his cigar, and it just becomes like a like a small animatic, right? It's almost animated where he's like whole, he's got nothing, and then he's lighting it, and then he's just smoking. And it kind of shows his kind of unwavering indifference to the situation. Like he is this kind of literal column that interrupts like the, that central, you know, the central grid of that of that or the central column of that grid uh, that is completely unwavering and indifferent. And he's just like he's he's got different motivations, right? Like I don't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, paint him as evil, but he just is differently motivated than perhaps the rest of the community. But then beyond that, like we get to like in that on that half of it, we start with Henry walking with Fimbres. And they're in a panel, and then the last panel of that of the two nine-panel grids is uh, Ramon walking away, and he's completely like without a panel; he's just floating in black space. At this point, he's like isolated. He's like he's isolated from his family. He's definitely not making friends with his opposition, or at least going to have any respect from him. And he's kind of going to be on his own from that point on. And it was just great to be able to like visually have him walking into blackness, surrounded by black. Um, and it, it just like the rhythm of that those entire like the way that Henry paced the. The dialogue and what he wanted in those just worked out to where we could do these two, you know, double page spread of, of two nine panel grids that ends with this little solitary figure of Ramon walking off into a, like a lonely existence. Yeah, I mean, it was also fun. Also, Bernardo really, I mean, Bernardo breathes a letter. I mean, he did so much without much direction and he picked up what we were trying to do and, uh, and would and chime in when it was, you know, when it was a good time for him to come in. And, and we didn't really get much, much like, give and take from that whole double-page spread because Gonzo and I really clicked in that moment. I think, I think like, that was what kind of really solidified me and what we were doing. Like, this double-page spread was, this is it. Like, finally, we're, we're the band that's been practicing and we finally got our song down. There was a... Um... In, in that in that protest in that in that spread specifically there was a moment where I kind of thought of like all these because we live I mean we live in a pretty scary time right now so there are a lot of protests going on and yeah. there are a lot of people uh, there are a lot of companies putting out videos about protests and there are a lot and there's a lot of one of the things that I'm I'm learning as I consume media is a lot of the time that um, that weight or that fear that you feel when you're in one of those gets more taken away and 
and sanitized and then you give somebody a Pepsi and uh, <laughs> when, I, when right. I, I saw that when I that, that's probably my favorite part of the book uh, personally because yeah. it reminded me of the weight behind it like there was a fear and a tension and there was nothing other than the art really pushing it that way and like the way you could see the dogs kind of moving up and it it reminded me of like the stuff my grandpa told me about and how scared he was but how you don't let fear stop you and so like I, from me to you all like thank you guys like for being able thank to you. tell a story that gets at that weight um because, you know. like, if you read the back matter, there was a responsibility the community had to itself. Yeah. And that was the crossing the Rubicon moment where, okay, we're going to we're going to make our voices known. And, th- and these are the unintended consequences. And here are the here's what we're going the resistance between both sides. And and it was important for me, uh, like Ray Freemus is, is a character that I met at a Tucson Hispanic Chamber of Commerce uh, event. And I was sitting at a table where everybody there was a business owner, politician, and they were bragging about how last week they were having dinner with Ted Cruz. And it was like, man, like I, I just was sitting there going, you are just against your own interests as, as a people. Like the like it was the Uncle Toms, the, you know, the, 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 the Theotomases in the room were just like, why are you? Why are you against your own people, and what what do you have? And and I and it was it would have been easy to make the the lobbyist the the white man, yeah. but there is a whole group of you know the border patrol is is my is a, the majority is Mexican Americans, and you know that, that's a, an interesting thing to me, and I and I wanted to have that you know that black and white kind of feel to the story. I think that that's something that our community doesn't call out enough is that the sometimes it's your own people is it's like, no, always it's our own people. (laughs) 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 Especially because I'm a Texan. So like I, Oh yeah. The first, uh, the first panel where you have uh, a there, I was like, Oh yeah. I'm not shocked at like, I didn't think twice that he wasn't a white guy. Um, what I did find really, uh, really interesting, uh, was seeing uh, the depiction of, uh, Congressman Udall, um, cause I had just listened to, uh, Latino USA did, uh, the fight against 187 and I had just seen the report. And so like, I have heard like Congressman Udall's name so much and then I saw him in Yale's book and I was like, this, this is really interesting. Can you tell me a little about like working, working in like the the heavy political side of things? I, it was, I mean, I'm a reporter, so that was the most fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love politics. Those are my novellas. You know, I, like I've been on every, I've been on the edge of my seat with this impeachment hearing. So to have to, to have to pour through books about Mo Udall was so much fun. What, what might've put a lot of people to sleep, but I learned that he was a funny guy. People love being around him and, and, his autobiography is called Too Funny to be President. And he worked for John, JF Kennedy, JFK. Like he, and he, if it weren't for him, Jimmy Carter, who was reluctant to even 
uh, recognized the tribe. They, that's how much they liked Mo Udo. They, that he liked him. That's why the tribe got recognized. They were afraid that the tribe was just trying to siphon taxpayer dollars. And it was because of Mo Udall's likability, his politics. And uh, I didn't know he had a glass eye. I didn't know he hurt his leg. And he was in the Air Force. And he was this uh, U, U of A basketball player. And, and it was just like, it was so much fun to like get to know this guy and and give him to Gonzo and give and Gonzo give him this personality that I think I hope fit the man. I just got to draw him in cool seventies clothes, so that was about my <laughs> input. <laughs> like if I if if we get to cast the movie, I want John Hamm to be Mo Yu. Oh yeah. I want him to be this tall, strapping, funny guy that everybody likes. Yeah. I which, by the way, you did say cool 70s clothes. The fashion is very good in the voice. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, that we, might have been my know, favorite part. Yeah, Sorry. that was fun. And, and that was important for our editor, Claire Napier. She's a very big fashion person. And I was like, please, you, you and Gonzo, figure out. Just make them look cool. Like, that's all I want. Because a lot of the times you open up comics, they're just wearing like a like a purple shirt and it's just so boring and i and uh, i'm so glad that gonzo has that sensibility as a, as a graphic designer and storyteller to make us want to be in these situations yeah clothes can really sell a person's personality too like you know how they choose the dress and so it's an easy shortcut to kind of filling in the gaps of someone's biography based on like the kind of clothes that they wear and i also the comic I do is set in the 60s, like my personal comic. And so I do a lot of research on like clothing of that time. And so much of it was like just so slightly different than today. You know what I mean? Like there's just a there's a cut to a T-shirt that people wore in the 60s that they just don't wear or the same with the 70s. And so just being able to do that, like just the, you know, the the collar length on everybody and, and those sorts of things. And the, the way the hair sits on everyone is, you know, like ever that, that feathered kind of look that you know you don't see anymore. But um, yeah, and it, it just helps set sell the time period, you know, gives you a setting. And uh, even when you don't have backgrounds, you, you know, you, you can at least it still feels like the late 60s, early 70s. And, and like, I, yeah, that's the part I love is just making sure that those little details can be right. And I mean, and, and I'll, you know, if I'm drawing a car, I make sure it existed in that year. I'm like, oh, this is a 72 and we're in 70. I'm like, you know, oh, yeah, I don't get to draw. Yeah. So I just want to I don't want anyone to be able to call me out on like some little like, oh, that actually that kind of lamp didn't come around until 75 and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's all very specific. And well, yeah, there is there are lamps in this book. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Those lamps are based on lamps from like, and that's the thing too is a lot of people. That's uh, just a small aside. A lot of people forget that there's a history to the places, even when you set it in a history, right? So if you're drawing a comic that happens in like sixty nine seventy, these people still have things from the fifties and forties, right? Like so you can oh, you can yeah. move backwards all the time. I think a lot of when a lot of people try to do like a seventies, you know, comic book or movie, even they make it so nineteen seventy one or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's so that that one year that it's like no, they, like they would ha they might have an old car and that might be a sixty two, or they might have a fifties car because yeah. they, you know, so they're both I, I, Yeah, yeah. So I, I like the ability to kind of sp you know just sprinkle in little things that that you know seem like heirlooms from even you know older times than that, but you know not not trying to get anachronistic and like. Have like a wireless phone or something in there. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, my last question is just, what's next for you guys? Either working together, <laughs> or working separately. What are y'all doing? You know, what can we, what can we look forward to? 
I think next for, you... next for Henry was going to be total world domination. Wasn't that your? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny we keep getting this question, and it's and I'm glad people are asking, right, Gonzo? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As yeah, opposed uh, to like, oh, you two are so not working together anymore, right? So, you know. But uh, now we literally just had this conversation. So I'll go with my end. So uh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. Uh, I, I instantly had to switch gears and finish up my personal comic. So uh, I just put out issue six of uh, La Mano del Destino, which is a like a 1960s lucha libre story. It's it's the ex- polar opposite of what of the seriousness of the, of, of what was the Maya. Like it is, uh, it's just dudes in in mask beating on each other uh, in the 19, 1960s Mexico. So I finished that, and I'm working on. Uh, getting the trade paperback of that together because I, I just did the last issue six completes the arc so i'm doing that uh and then beyond that i don't really know what's going to happen but i i would like to i think once i kind of spend some time on my personal project i think i would like to get back with henry and, and figure out what we're going to do next project wise yeah we uh we did a signing at heidi ho comics in santa monica and uh and we were sitting down talking about what we want to do next, and we're definitely gonna. And, and, and my in every interview I've done, and people have asked us what's next. I, my what's next for me is to get out of Gonzo's way because he has a plethora of things he wants to do, and he gave me a year and six months of his time, and I will never for, forget it. You know, and and. I, I really, I have uh, pitches I'm working on. I really, I have a Latinx superhero I want to do. I have a uh, Dungeons and Dragons Latinx uh, story that I'm really interested in doing. There's a Tucson true crime comic that I really like to get started on. And I think uh, I'm going to be working on Michael Macropolis. Well, Michael Macropolis and I might be doing that. And he helped us... uh, with some coloring assists on our, and this on the last chapter of La Voz de Mayo. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really lucky that I, that I have, that I, that, that I have the, the freedom right now to kind of pick what I want to do. And, and I'm, and I'm lucky to be associated with image comics and top cow productions that are really behind us as creators and, and looking, looking to us for something else. And, um, I actually, in the prose area, I really want to do a Native American comics history book because I think um, that's important. So, well, I mean, I'm really excited for what the future may hold, and I'm really excited to get back to doing something with Gonzo again because I think we I think we did something magical, and I, and I can't wait to do that magic trick again. Or find out that we just can't do it again. You know, just like, oh, that was a one-off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean, but either way, we gotta do it. So. <laughs> well, I will wait for anything that that y'all two do. Seriously, like from the bottom of my heart, like I I do truly wish that my grandpa was around to read this. Like it would have been so entirely his his cup of tea. Like this, like my willow was a guy who like wrote to his paper nonstop and like. He had a first grade education, but went and joined the lodge and used it to do like community movements. And like, I I see a lot of him in y'all's book, and I don't know if it's just because uh, Day of the Dead just happened, but like I've been real emotional about it. So uh, thank you guys a lot. Thank you for reading and taking the time. We we didn't get any. I mean, we got very few reviews, and and one of yours is the most memorable and most important to us and we really appreciate the support and the the fact that you that you've gone out of your way to tell people about it so thank you so much 
Thank you guys so much. Uh, one last thing, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs to follow your work. So, oh, Henry, you want, you want me to go first? Yeah, go first. Okay, yeah, so um, you can find me, uh, I have a website, jgonzo designs, it's the letter J, gonzo, and designs is plural, uh, .com, and uh, there's links to like, my social media and stuff there, and then if you want to buy my personal comics, uh, La Mano del Destino comes out through Castle and Key Publications, and you can just go to Castle and Key Publications, all one word, uh, .com, and uh, there's a, a link to my shop there. If you want to check out my 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 non-serious uh, Lucha Libre stuff, that's where that happens. Uh, I'm at uh, Henry Barajas on Twitter, Henry J. Barajas everywhere else on Facebook and Instagram. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's you'll find me on Twitter talking about how important libraries and comic books are. So Awesome. Well, thank you guys again for, for doing this. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah.